0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history.
1: I'm Walt Woodward.
2: And I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Today I'm joined by Patrick O'Sullivan, our podcast producer, someone who's usually behind the scenes. But he's a Hartford fan, and today we're going to talk about the father of Hartford skyscrapers, Don Barber, born in 1871, a New York City architect, could be called the father of Hartford skyscrapers. He designed Hartford's first skyscraper, the Hartford National Bank in 1911, and another, the Traveler's Tower, a landmark in 1919. It reigned as the tallest in New England for decades. The first, the Hartford National Bank building, was demolished in 1990 while the other, the Traveler's Tower, is still an icon of the Hartford skyline, one whose owner restored it in 2013. Barber and these two buildings not only dramatically changed Hartford's skyline, they also played a role in advancing the city's burgeoning white-collar banking and insurance industries in the early 20th century. After all, Hartford is known as the Insurance City. Barber's Hartford work also included several other landmark buildings. He designed the Connecticut State Library in 1910, the unrealized Charter of Bank building in 1914, the Traveler's Tower in three stages between 1906 and 1919, more about that later, and the Hartford Times building in 1920. Washington-born Don Barber had received the very best architectural training available and he had worked in some of New York City's toniest architectural design firms. He was educated at Yale and at Columbia and the École de Beaux-Arts in Paris, France. The École fostered a generation of American architects who designed in what became known in architecture and city planning circles as the Beaux-Arts style. This classically based style reshaped American taste and its cities at the beginning of the 20th century. Barber worked for Carrar and Hastings, Cass Gilbert, who was the architect of the Waterbury City Hall and New Haven's Union Station, and the former owner and resident of Ridgefield's Keeler Tavern Museum, and Lord and Howlett before opening his own office in 1900. By 1906, architect Don Barber received his first commission from the Travelers Insurance Company to design the first section of the Travelers' building on Main Street but it was the magnificent Connecticut State Library and Supreme Court building in 1910 that cemented his reputation in Hartford for designing grand, show-stopping buildings. Let's talk to my guest, Ken Wigan, retired state librarian, about how Barber got that job. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Mary. Pleasure to be here.
2: When did the State Library get its start?
1: So the state library was actually established um, by the legislature in 1854. Even though we were the early states, we were one of the later ones to get a state library for whatever reason. But 1854 is the establishment date.
2: So that's really early. And then what about the Supreme Court?
1: Um, The Supreme Court dates back to 1784. So it's it's been around a lot longer than the state library. By
2: 1900, there have to have been just irreplaceable state documents that belonged to the state library and were managed by the state librarian. But where were those housed?
1: So the state library was first located in the old state house. And then when the new uh, Capitol building was built, they moved everything to the Capitol. And so from the time the Capitol opened um, until the 1900s, everything was stored in the Capitol in various rooms. And they were kind of beginning to encroach on the legislature's uh, spaces. And it was just a very congested building with a lot of documents, many of which had been collected by the Secretary of State's office and became part of the State Library collection. There was also a large collection of uh, portraits that had been started. So there's a little bit of, you know, art and museum piece to it. There's the historical documents, and they were just all over the building.
2: Yeah, because I understand from an article you wrote that they were like under the eaves and in the attic. How accessible were those things?
1: Well, I think that was part of the problem that while the books themselves may have been um, accessible, it was getting harder and harder to get at the other things. They were collecting and then just putting them wherever they could find room for because the building had not been designed to really house a library.
2: That makes sense. By 1903, the state of Connecticut, and this is a state of Connecticut title, if I ever heard one, established the commission to make repairs on the state capitol and to procure a site for the new building. What got them to establish that commission?
1: Well, there were, George Goddard was um, appointed the state librarian in in 1900, and he had a lot of connections uh, with various uh, political leaders in the state. And began to see the need for more space. And I think the court was also beginning to realize they needed space. And they were able to get to Governor Chamberlain, um, who in his inaugural or one of his state of the state addresses, uh, mentioned that the need for space in the Capitol. So what I think the original plan was, or the idea was, well, we'll just add on to the Capitol. And you know the building, it's not the, you know, it's such a great building, But how do you add on to a place like that? And I think uh, Goddard probably, and I, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty comfortable thinking that he didn't want to be an addition to that building. He wanted his own building. And this was a time when uh, the Library of Congress had just, their the Jefferson building had just been built. And that was, you know, it was really the, Congress's library originally. And so there was that, the New York Public Library's main building was being built. So there was a a movement toward this. And there were also some other states that were building state libraries and Supreme courts together because one fed off the other. And so I think there was a general idea that, okay, we'll we'll look at this idea of adding on, Um, but what we really want is a, a separate building. And so this commission kept getting kind of reconstituted every few years, um, I think, as they began to see the need uh, to really go the separate route. And it was a very powerful commission. I mean, they basically did what they wanted to do.
2: They must have had great social connections then. So they actually, they managed to get past the idea of adding on to the state capitol, and they're going to put up a new building. How did they decide where it was gonna be? And I know that uh, you said George Goddard had requirements for the building that he wanted to see incorporated.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they looked at what the available land was around it. And so here you have the new state Capitol building, and now they're also beginning to plan the Armory building. And I think there was a vision of sort of this capital complex as part of the city beautification movement and so the logical piece of land uh, is where the current building is now. There were some houses there, a um, few apartments, um, but the land, you know, was almost ideal looking right toward the Capitol. So I think that that played a large part and they were able to acquire the land. So that was part of, it. but the building itself, actually, Barber was known for trying to incorporate modern um, elements into new buildings, uh, functional pieces and Goddard. Had, had spent a lot of time, he was very active in national organizations. He visited uh, the Library of Congress. He saw some innovations that he thought he should have in this new building. Uh, one of the predominant things was to make this, what uh, people say fireproof. There's no, my father was a fire chief. There's no such thing as fireproof, but fire resistant building, because he knew he wanted to house all of these important documents. And in fact, he set upon uh, trying to retrieve a lot of things that had come out of state hands over the years. So he needed to have a building um, that would be made and in, functionally inside as modern as possible. So much of the wood, what you think is woodwork in the main reading room of the state library is actually metal painted to look like wood. Um, they put in an air conditioning system of its day, I mean, it's nothing like today, but they had this air uh, movement system. They had Um, a central back system. (laughs) He also actually wanted to have a connection to the Capitol building, which would be able to move books and materials back and forth underground. He had seen that in Washington at the Library of Congress, how they were connected to the Capitol. So they actually started digging Uh, to get underneath the highway and they ran into water and to this day there's a grotto underneath the state library where this the high water table they never managed to go very far with that idea but he had a lot of interesting ideas about having a very modern building the lighting on the other hand they brought in a lot of classical elements so it, it's a really interesting time um, in building.
2: Now this is the real career maker in Hartford for Don Barber to start with. How did they choose him? Now, he's a New York City architect. How did they get him?
1: So the commission invited various architects in the country to submit proposals. And one of the requirements was it had to be a Beaux-Arts design I think, well, if you look at some of the buildings I mentioned earlier, the you know the New York Public Library and others, they had that Beaux-Arts style to them. Goddard um, had been um, in Chicago during the uh, World's Fair and seen the Great White City. He was, I think, very motivated by that style of architecture. So that was part of the commission's requirement. And five firms submitted uh, proposals. They were vetted by the committee. Um, And they sort of began to narrow them down. And ultimately, they picked uh, Barber's uh, proposal. Uh, What we know who the other architects were, what we never have seen is what the other proposals looked like. They were all sent back. Um, Sometimes when there's a public, you know, process like this, they'll put all of them on exhibits so people can see them. But this was not done that way. They just immediately uh, sent the proposals back with the to the submitter saying, thank you, but (laughs) we're not accepting your proposal. So that's how Barber ended up with, uh, and I think his design probably very, you know, spoke to Goddard and the commission members.
2: One of the requirements was that he had to work with a local architect or have some local architect's name on the project. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: So he picked a, um, a local architect to be part of, they were partners on the building, at least initially. It was Hapgood of Hartford, and he played a, a somewhat of a role, but I think as time went on, he played a lesser role. And in fact, I think Goddard particularly, but the commission as well, kind of replaced the, having a second architect. They were very involved. Goddard would make regular trips to New York City to Barber's office and spend time with Barber. Um, I think they became good friends. Uh, this is my speculation, but things went very smoothly. But the commission in um, Goddard got very involved in selecting all the elements of the building. I mean, down to the type of granite and everything else. So it was a really interesting partnership and you hear less and less about have Good and more, you know, it's more Barber's project.
2: Hey Grading the Nutmeggers. We'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with the CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of great stuff to enhance your grading the nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. Comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Check it out at ctexplored.substack.com. It's free. What was the response to the completed building?
1: I think in some ways people were like awed oh, by it. It was generally, I think, very well received. It was a very, you know, beautiful building, still is. You know, the public didn't have a really I- any idea of what this was really going to look like. Um, but I think it must have been fascinating for people in Hartford to watch it being built. Um, the state library actually has construction progress photos of the building that were taken from the Capitol over time, so you can actually see the building rise out of the ground. Um, I mean, it was a massive building built almost all by hand. It was all labor, hand labor, um, horse carts um, in the excavation of the foundations. So it was one of those last great buildings, stone uh, buildings built without any modern equipment. So I, I think when they saw it being built and then the finished product was extremely well received, It got a good notice in the paper. A lot of people, well, they had a very soft opening for it. <laughs> I mean, there was, no, there was a bigger deal about the laying of the cornerstone. Uh, which was very symbolic, and just you know, the chief justice spoke. They had the Masons there. I mean, it's it's that was quite a thing. And and then it, actually, it's a huge block. If you go to the, see the building today, on the left, uh, if you look at the building in the left corner, it's got a date and everything on it. Um, the opening was very subdued, but it was well received.
2: Oh, well, that's good. And then I know that you can tell just from the name of the building that it's got the state library and it's got the Supreme Court in it, how did it end up with Memorial Hall, which I think everybody's taken a field trip to?
1: So the State Library has, I mentioned when they were over at the Capitol, they started having a collection of portraits and other objects, I think, uh, were collected. But Goddard, I joke that he was a hoarder, but in a good way, he um, started collecting everything and began to acquire a lot of artifacts. And I'm not sure he had a particular vision for them, other than they would be something that represented Connecticut's history, you know, artifacts representing the history. But it wasn't uh, necessarily thought out as a um, museum, but it was this tribute. And it, it sort of, it explains the building in a way too, because there is... You know some buildings will have a big grand entrance uh, before you actually get in the building when you get in the state library has an impressive portico as you walk in but inside you're directed either over to the court or to the library and then in the center um, is this uh, museum basically or memorial hall and it was set up with lots of exhibits just kind of laid out there and it was really interesting but it, it was part of that and then the collection of gubernatorial portraits which was something that was Started at the started when they were still at the Capitol, and then just continued over time. So they also needed space to put those. I'm not sure how Goddard convinced everybody, but that they should be over at the state library, not over in the Capitol. But uh, because many states, those portraits would be in the in the Capitol, um, but they are at the state library. So um, it's just an interesting aspect of the state library.
2: Some of the features that were originally designed for the building really weren't completed until as late as 1931. What did that involve?
1: So like all projects over, you know, they kept running short of money. <laughs> so some of the furnishings took longer to acquire and get in there. Some of the uh, the murals in the uh, Supreme Court uh, side took time. They were controversial. So that, that took some time. There's a, you know, We talk about public art in buildings today, and a lot of state buildings have an element of public art. This building definitely did. There were the sculptures over the main entrance, um, and those took some time to do. There was also, as I said, the ceilings um, in the main reading room of the library. Uh, All of that wasn't done when the building opened. Um, The last element in, in 1931, was actually put the inscription um, over the three stones over the main entrance designating history, justice, uh, and the library. So, and that was controversial. (laughs) That took a while to figure out. They wanted to put, you know, like Latin forms of the words. And I think people figured by the 30s, who's going to even know what that means? So they finally just, you know, came up with the wording. Um, but I think, you know, they just had to keep going back and getting a little bit more money to finish this and finish that. Just the the outfitting of a building of that size.
2: Thank you so much. We're going to move on to Don Barber's work that he get, receives in Hartford because he did such a great job on the State Library. Thanks, Ken.
1: You're welcome, Mary.
2: At the beginning of the 20th century, Hartford was awash in downtown banks and insurance companies. The Hartford National Bank, a 115-year-old local banking institution, bought the building at the northwest corner of Asylum and Main Streets in 1907, and in 1911 announced that it would build the city's first skyscraper on this very prominent corner. Fresh from his design triumph at the Connecticut State Library, Barber won the commission, The Hartford Current declared on June 9, 1911 that it
0: will represent his best work
2: and that the
0: banking floor would be very similar to Memorial Hall at the State Library.
2: Not everybody was happy, however, that both a New York City architect and an out-of-state construction company had been chosen to build the city's first skyscraper on one of downtown's most prominent corners. On July 11, 1911, the Hartford Interstate Local Assembly of Interstate Builders, Contractors, and Dealers Association took out a full-page ad in the Hartford Current with the headline, Hartford Building
0: Interests Ask for Fair Play.
2: The ad asserted that
0: millions of dollars that should have remained in Hartford have gone out of Hartford
2: and demanded that more construction projects be awarded to Hartford architects and builders. Barber was specifically called out. The ad reproduced a letter written on Barber's company letterhead that asked a local company to submit its qualifications for the project. That image was accompanied by a letter in response from Charles B. Anderson's son, a local construction company, that argued, although it had never built a skyscraper, the company was more than capable of doing so. The ad sentiment was
0: New York needs Hartford contractors more than Hartford needs New York's.
2: Now, Chicago is credited as being the home to the first skyscraper, the home insurance building in 1885, built with 10 stories to a height of about 138 feet. Innovative Chicago architects began to use a metal framework of riveted girders that would support the building's weight and a curtain wall of exterior cladding. By 1889, New York City had its first true metal frame skyscraper, the Tower Building. But what are the three design features that make a building a skyscraper? As Nicholson Cole reported in The First Century of the Skyscraper, A Short History, it was a wave of new inventions in the 1880s that helped architects to build higher than ever before. Bessemer steel formed into I-sections in the new rolling mills enabled taller and more flexible frame design than the cast iron of the previous era. The new patented sprinkler heads allowed building to escape a strict height limit imposed to control the risk of fire, and the patenting of AC electricity allowed elevators to be electrically powered and rise to 10 or more stories. Despite the high-profile protests by local builders, work went ahead as planned on the Hartford National Bank building. And five weeks into the construction, nine of 11 stories of the steel frame had gone up. The Hartford Current sent a reporter and a photographer to the Buzzy Construction site. Their story, on December 6, 1911, presented a revealing look at the work of the structural iron workers, With construction taking place 100 feet or more in the air without safety harnesses or fall nets, The reporter reported that one person's opinion...
0: That it was an even bet that at least three men would be killed on the building.
2: That was no idle speculation. As historian Jim Rasenberger explains in High Steel, the daring men who built the world's greatest skyline...
0: The erection of structural steel, concluded a study in 1910 by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, must be recognized as one of the most hazardous industrial operations in the country.
2: According to the Hartford Current story,
0: the ladders rose almost perpendicularly and were shaky at times. The
2: building at present is no place for a nervous man. The photographer captured two striking images of the steelworkers.
0: In their trade, a man must depend on the agility of his limbs as well as the accuracy of his eyes to keep his wife from collecting on his life insurance policy.
2: The Hartford Current reporter concluded,
0: Certainly Hartford's first skyscraper is being built with the most modern methods.
2: On September 20th, 1912, the court reported that the Hartford National Building now had its most handsome home.
0: There is no question that the new skyscraper is the most striking building upon the landscape of Hartford. The height is the most striking characteristic.
2: The building's design followed the practice of dividing the exterior elevation into three parts, like a classical column, with an elaborate base, plain shaft, and decorated roofline, in addition to the building's height. It had what was considered fireproof construction and two passenger elevators, all the elements of a skyscraper. As reported in The Current,
0: The bank occupied the first two floors, including an ornate banking floor, impressive lobby, president's office, and a board of directors' room on the first floor. The bank offices above were equipped with the latest features to improve the efficiency of the burgeoning number of white-collar workers, including secretaries, stenographers, clerks, accountants, and mailroom staff. The open floor plan had rows of desks. Time-saving features such as pneumatic tubes that whisked paperwork between offices, mail chutes, file rooms, telephones, and messenger call services all contributed to the development of the modern office. The upper floors had 99 income-producing offices, enabling the bank to further profit from its new building by renting them to other businesses.
2: Traveler's Tower on Hartford's Main Street had an unusual construction story. In 1905, the current announced that the company board of directors had chosen Don Barber and Edward T. Hapgood as the architects of the new building, a five-story building, not the tower you're thinking of. Soon after the building's 1906 completion, more offices were needed. By 1913, travelers constructed an addition on the south side, creating what could now be recognized as the base for the skyscraper tower that was to come. The 1906 and the 1913 portions of the building were identical, with a heavy rusticated stone arcade at the ground level, five floors of offices, and a massive overhanging bracketed cornice. When the addition opened in 1913, it was anticipated that there would be more than enough office space for employees for years. But business was booming, and more office space was needed. Once again, Barber got the commission. The new office space was to be a skyscraper tower above the existing 1906 and 1913 buildings. This is an unusual approach. Monumental office buildings across the country were usually conceived of as one single building. In The American Architect in 1918, Barber described the style of the new tower as free renaissance. The 527-foot tower is steel-framed and sheathed in westerly granite. Quarries, owned by James Goodwin Batterson, founder of Travelers Insurance Company in 1863, supplied the stone for the tower. Barber noted that the tower was unusual because it is not a straightforward square building until it reaches 400 feet in height, with flush, cliff-like elevations on the north and south sides. Building materials, including the structural steel, were ordered before the onset of World War I so that construction could begin in 1917 and be uninterrupted by war shortages. Unbelievably, staff continued to work in the offices in the 1906 and 1913 buildings throughout the whole construction. When it opened in 1919, Traveler's Tower was the tallest building in New England, the seventh tallest in the world and the first commercial building outside of New York City to rise higher than 500 feet, according to Empress, the company that collects data on buildings of high public and economic value. It remained the tallest in New England until 1964, and the tallest in Connecticut until 1984. With the exception of two banks with offices on the ground floor, the building was occupied entirely by Travelers Home Office employees. Departments were organized by floor, and an electric dumbwaiter moved mail. The telephone switchboard had 18 operators. Six elevators moved passengers to the 21st floor, and two continued to the 24th floor. A beacon of light and a radio station were added to the tower in 1919. The fate of these two early skyscrapers diverged markedly. The Hartford National Bank building went through a series of owners as local banks merged. It, along with a half a block of other historic buildings, was demolished over vehement protests by historic preservationists in 1990 for a development that never happened. 31 years later, the area is still a vacant surface parking lot. Traveler's Tower received several additions, but it's still occupied by its namesake company. In 2013, the building received a $30 million exterior restoration that repaired the granite stonework and cleaned and repainted the cast-iron spandrels between the windows. Traveler's Tower has been much photographed since it was completed and still shines as the most recognizable landmark of Hartford's skyline. On May 29, 1925, Don Barber died. He had designed the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., the New York Cotton Exchange, and the Lotus Club in New York. His obituary in Time magazine read in part,
0: As it must to all men, death came to Don Barber, famed architect. Although during this period, a sinister and daily exaggerated swelling of the skull made it clear to him that he was doomed, Mr. Barber, with that unruffled suavity which is the highest manifestation of civilized courage, continued to transact business over the telephone, finished the last details of plans he knew he would never see executed, and set his affairs in order.
2: Hartford is all the better for having landmarks designed by Don Barber. This has been Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored, with Patrick O'Sullivan, Podcast Engineer, for grading the nutmeg. I want to thank our guest, Ken Wigan. And I hope that you'll listen to the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.